I want to start today by sharing two, uh, two quick stories. Um, one of these I think you've probably heard. Uh, another one maybe you haven't. But the first one took place, these are real stories, stories about real people, on January 15, 2009. Uh, on January 15, 2009, flight 1549 departed from LaGuardia, which is just outside of New York City, for Charlotte, North Carolina. And everything seemed to be going quite well. Normal takeoff. There really wasn't anything uh, of note until flight 1549 uh, passed through a, um, a flock of Canadian geese. Now, oftentimes when an airline uh, ship goes through, and if, if it's a big deal if you get one geese in one of your engines. That can be a problem. They actually have all of these systems developed around airports to scare geese off so that this doesn't happen. But every once in a blue moon, something like this happens. So this flight goes through a flock of Canadian geese, and, so, and their engines get so clogged that they're, they're starting to stop running. It's an emergency situation. Maybe you know this story a little bit at all. So when, as soon as the pilot realizes this, he and his co-pilot begin to look around. They see some small airports way off in the distance, but there's no guarantee that they can make it. They also turn and they look at the New Jersey Turnpike. I think that might be another option, but there obviously there's so many cars, they can't imagine they could land safely there, uh, both for the passengers on the, on the flight, but also for the people driving their cars. They didn't see how they could possibly do that. So they noticed one other place they thought they might be able to land. Does anyone know where that was? The Hudson River. Right. So uh, Captain Chelsea Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do, in two to three minutes, at least these vital things. They had to do more things that probably I would never understand. But these I can understand. So first, they had to shut down the engines. They had to set the right speed so that the plane could glide as long as possible without power. They had to get the nose of the plane pointed down so that they wouldn't lose speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system that seals all the vents and the valves on the plane so that it could be as buoyant as possible and float and not sink when they landed in the river. And then they had to fly and glide the plane into a fast left-hand turn because they had to land in the direction that the water was flowing and not against the current. And they had to realize that they had to do that. And then they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left turn so the plane would be level when landing and finally get the nose up again, but not too far, and do all of this using only... (coughs) Emergency generators and battery-powered systems. And they did it. They landed that flight on the Hudson River. And Captain Sully acted as if landing the plane on the river was second nature to him. And the reason why was because although he'd never landed a commercial jet on a river before... He performed every one of those maneuvers over and over again, countless times across years of experience and training, so that when the crisis hit, he was simply able to respond as if it was his second nature. He didn't have time to pull out a manual about how to land a plane on a river. He just had to act and respond 
automatically. Another story, Max, or sorry, Mark Baxter. Mark Baxter is a gentleman who uh, lived in the town of Chester Street, Chester Lee Street, sorry, in the north of England. And in September of 2008, that region of the world had lot had an unusual amount of rain. In fact, in one day, uh, they got so much rain it was the what they would normally get an entire month. And it rained so many days that a Mark began to become weary of being in the in the home with his family. So he said, let's go for a walk. So yeah, it's raining, but let's go out. Let's put all our gear on. Let's get out there and let's walk around. Let's splash in puddles. And let's have some fun. So they go out in the rain. They go to the local park. And they're, they're, you know, they're having a good day as a family. And then his daughter sees a puddle up in front of her. So she runs ahead um, to go and splash in the puddle, their little dog following behind. So as she runs up to the puddle, she jumps up in the air. And when she comes down in the puddle, she disappears. Literally. Dad watches this happen, sees his dog follow, do the same thing, and disappear. This isn't a science fiction story. This is a true life story. What he realized in a moment is that the storm drain that covers the, uh, uh, the storm sewer had come loose, and his daughter had been sucked down into the storm drain, and so did his dog. Now, for most of us, I think this would be, for me, I think this would be a moment of panic. What do I do? Do I dive in after? Like, do I hope that, you know, what am I going to do? Well, his mind went immediately to the fact that storm drains empty out into the river. So he took off in a dead sprint for the river to look for his daughter. And when he got there, he saw her raincoat, but with her head underwater floating down the river. So he dove in, he grabbed her, he pulled her ashore, and long story short, all she had was some bumps and bruises. She was fine. But when he was interviewed by uh, the local news, um, they asked him um, how he stayed so cool and acted so quickly. And Mark said, every time I had a bad thought, I forced myself to think of something else. And when others might have panicked, Mr. Baxter was able to keep it together and make good decisions as if being in this situation was second nature to him. Of course, he'd never been in that situation before. But it turns out it wasn't just luck that he was able to keep a clear head. Apparently, Mark wasn't just born a cool cucumber, but actually for years he'd been, he had worked for the British Royal Air Force and had been trained in how to stay cool in intense situations and how to keep his thoughts in check. And also, this is an interesting detail, his daughter, it turns out, had been taking swimming lessons where they had been practicing something called the star float, which is where you put your head underwater, hold your breath, and put your arms out so that you float. So when she was sucked into the storm drain, instead of panicking and trying to breathe and sucking in a lot of water and filling her lungs with water, she held her breath, put her head down, and her arms out. Now, these are two stories that I think would be fun just to tell you anyway, but I'm sharing them with you because I think they're examples of something, now stay with me here, that ancient philosophers actually call virtue. Now, virtue, we're going to talk about this all day, so if you don't get it just with me giving you a definition, don't worry. But virtue is practicing the habits 
of the heart and life that point toward the true goal of human existence, what people across the centuries have called human flourishing, a fulfilled life. And what we're going to look at today and for the rest of the summer, actually, is how a significant key to you and me flourishing in your life now is developing and living lives full of virtue. Now, last week we said that everything, we were talking about actually creation care and the environment, we said that everything is heading towards a good end, that God is in the process of renewing everything, that a new heaven and earth are going to come, renewal is going to break out, it's going to be awesome, and that's where we're headed. But we also said that that's also something that we can experience now. And what I'm hoping you get from this series is that virtue and developing virtue in your life is a significant way that you can experience that future life now. If we learn to develop habits of heart and life that point towards that final destination. And the idea, the hope, and the power of virtue is that what we do here and now is actually umbilically connected to who we will be in the next newly created, renewed world. If we foster it, we can connect to that now. So, what are these virtues, and how do we develop them? And, that, and what we're going to look at is this over the entire summer. And we're going to look at a list in the Bible of virtues, or virtue, that's also become known fruit of the, as fruit of the Spirit. So today I'm going to set the background, and then each week we're going to look at a different one, and how we can build those into our lives so that we can experience what's to come now. So that our lives certainly aren't about waiting for something to happen someday after we're dead, but actually about experiencing those things in the here and now, this week, next week, and for the rest of our lives. Does that sound interesting? Virtue. And before I go any further, I want to give uh, credit to a book I read called After You Believe by N.T. Wright. Um, I don't know where his ideas end and mine start, so I just want to give him credit up front and, and not even pretend. So... Here we go. Let's read the passage we're looking at today. This is Galatians 5, 13 to 25. Um, and it's Paul, uh, the early church father, writes this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit." 
Now, in this passage, I think we can learn some really helpful things about vice, virtue, and hope for the here and now. So let's take a look at those things in that order. First, let's talk about vice. Isn't it fun to talk about vice? Let me give you a little statement up front, and then we'll break it down a little bit. Here's where I want to land. Vice results from labeling the status quo authentic. Vice results from labeling the status quo authentic. You know, I think if there's one thing that dominates the way people in our day and age approach life decisions on a day-in, day-out basis, it's the value, uh, the primacy, the, the high regard that we place on authenticity. You know, we've taken what Shakespeare said, and I wonder if you can finish this line for me, to thine own self be true, be true. good job, wow, and made it the gold standard for how to live our lives. And if you watch television shows, if you watch reality TV, particularly if you watch like uh, singing competitions, uh, you'll see this mantra repeated over and over again. I just got to be true to myself. I got to believe in who I am. I got to follow my gut. And being true to yourself is what matters. Trust and follow your heart and you will never go wrong. Be authentic. And sometimes it even goes to the point of if something doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. If it's uncomfortable, quit. And to move forward in those directions doesn't feel natural and therefore it's kind of perceived as hypocritical. It's not true to who you are. Now, let me just say, I'm not down or anti the thought of authenticity. In fact, we're going to talk about authenticity all day today and we're going to come back to some ways where I think it's really helpful and where we want to land in so many ways. But I also think that it's not helpful out of context or just on its own, or if what it does is just reinforce whatever you're doing in your life, the status quo. Because I would suggest that in my life and in your life, sometimes the status quo isn't a good thing. Maybe it's not even a healthy thing. You know, scientists who study the brain have been finding for years now that the significant moments in your life, including significant choices you make about how you behave and what you do, create literal information pathways in your brain. Patterns. They're like valleys cut through the mountains. I just got back from Colorado. And you can, it's, it's beautiful. You see these huge peaks and giant mountains, and right through the mountains, a river flows, and it's cut a valley. And our choices that we make, and particularly significant events that happen in our lives, they actually cut valleys in your brain and how it works and how you process information. So that after time, no matter what those experiences are, no matter what those choices are you make, they begin to start to feel natural true to who you are, whether they're healthy or not, whether they're helpful to you or not. They're just the pathways that are being cut literally into your brain. And here's a significant thing. Patterns that are formed during highly emotional times or significant times 
cut deeper and faster. Be they positive or negative, be they pleasant or painful than other choices that we make so that patterns can develop in our lives, in our brains, out of moments of hurt and disappointment and pain and even brokenness. And if you think back to some of the decisions that you've made, and I can think into my life, during moments of pain or disappointment, they're not always the healthiest choices, are they? But they start to get cut in our brain, and they start to feel normal and natural, and it starts to feel authentic to live in that way and easier to live in that way, even if it's not really helping you. Are you following with me? And that, I think, is what we actually see in another way described in this passage we're reading today. So Paul, the author here, he uses a phrase that probably doesn't make much sense to us to describe what happens when we don't check what feels natural in our lives. He refers to those choices as acts of the flesh, and he has this list of all these things, right? And for Paul, this idea of the flesh, I don't know a single person in here or in my life that refers to the flesh in their normal everyday life. Anyone? I mean, it's like not, you don't turn on the news and say, well, we saw a lot of acts of the flesh today and it wasn't a good day or anything like that. But for Paul, what he's referring to, he's not anti-physical. You know, there's these streams of thought where everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. That's not what Paul's getting at. If you read everything he writes, that's not what he's saying at all. But when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about the things in our lives that either are decaying or lead to decay. So these are the things that aren't going to last. When the new heaven and earth comes, when everything is renewed in the world, in creation, and in your life, those things aren't going to be a part of it. They're decaying. They're not being renewed. They're the patterns in your brain that form when you're in pain and you make really bad decisions. And it starts to feel natural but it's, it's, it's not good for you. Those are acts, the acts of the flesh result from that place. It's the place that says the status quo is the way it should be. It's a place that doesn't hope for something better, but says this is the way it is, and that's good enough. It feels right, so it must be okay. And it doesn't lead or lend itself to renewal, and as such... These customs of the heart, they become habits in our lives, which solidify and become deeper ruts in our brains, if you will, over time, the more we do it, so that eventually they feel like a vice. And vice is a good word because it's just a pressure and it's hard to get out of something that's gripping you. And that's the point of the word vice. And the result is decay. So just because a behavior feels natural, labeling it authentic is doing you a disservice because not everything that comes easy is good. And I like to suggest we use the term authentic in another way. Let's talk about virtue for a minute. We'll give you a statement and we'll break it down a little bit more. Virtue results from developing a second nature from which we live authentically. 
I think this value of living an authentic life, of the things we do in our life reflecting who we are, I think that's a good value. As long as we check the place that what we're doing things is coming from. And I really like the phrase second nature a whole lot. I like it because virtue, unlike many of the acts of the flesh, does not always come in a way that feels natural. Virtues are not automatic. You can consider our passage today. Notice that one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Did you notice that? If virtue came automatically, self-control would not be a virtue. Because the very nature of self-control is that it's not automatic, right? So virtues, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, aren't things that necessarily just happen. And second, you can see this idea because they're called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of Brad or the fruit of Mosaic or the fruit of humanity, but fruit of the Spirit. They're fruit. Wait, let me back up. Actually, I want to emphasize that later. That's coming later. I got ahead of myself. They're fruit. (laughs) That's what I was trying to say. They're fruit. Fruit has to be tended. It doesn't just grow on its own. Now, let me say this right now. I know a lot of you, and I know some of your stories, and I know that many of you have had some of these remarkable experiences where you've experienced God in a way, and it's just been like a revolution. And you were headed one way, and then you started going another way. And that can happen. There are a lot of things where the power of God comes into your life and things change in the blink of an eye. That's awesome. And I don't want to undercut that. But for those of you who have had that experience, you know that it doesn't mean that everything from that point on is just downhill. That's amazing. It's awesome. That happens from time to time in our lives. But a lot of things take time to develop. They take pruning, tending. You have to irrigate trees so that they'll grow and vines so that they'll produce. You have to protect your plant, your fruit from squirrels and birds. You have to cut away ivy. You have to pay attention and tend over time so that what begins as blossoms and maybe that is the immediate effect sometimes that many of us have experienced of following Jesus. A revelation, a breakthrough, the blossoms. So that those blossoms become long-term fruit has to be tended. And fruit grows through conscious choices of the mind, heart, and will over weeks, months, and years. Choice after choice after choice after choice after choice. And so many people that we see as heroes and so many moments that we see as miraculous, and I believe in miracles, but so many moments that we see as miraculous happen because someone has been formed in this way. They've been developed. Captain Sully, who landed the plane on the Hudson River, was considered a hero for doing what came naturally to him after years and years of practice and training. 
He didn't see himself as a hero. He wanted to hide from the spotlight. Do you remember that? He was just doing what he knew to do. It was second nature to him. Think of your sports heroes. Anybody got any sports heroes? The people who make the shot under the most pressure in the most incredible way at the exact moment that they need to. I would venture to guess that almost every single one of those people have hit that shot in practice thousands of times. And when the time came and the moment came in the game, they didn't think, okay, now what do I do? Instead, they just responded as if making that incredible shot was second nature because everything in them had been trained to do that thing authentically without thinking. It just happened because they had built the virtue of being able to hit a shot over years and years of investment. You know, one time, um, (laughs) the Hall of Fame golfer uh, Gary Player was labeled by a critic as lucky. And his response to the criticism was, I've noticed that the harder I practice, the luckier I get. Virtue is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then, on the 1,001st time, when it really matters, they find out that what's required, they do automatically. That's virtue. Virtue allows us to live authentically out of the character that we've developed over the years by denying things that seem natural but really are signs of decay and investing in ways that seem unnatural but bring life. Are you starting to see what virtue is? Virtue doesn't happen overnight. It's something that's fostered and developed over weeks and months and years. But when it is allows us to live in life-giving ways as if it's automatic, as if it's authentic, because it comes from a place of who we really are. And the result is a renewal, a taste of what's coming now, the future now, flourishing that will happen happening here now. One last thing. Virtue is both a gift and a choice. This is where I was going. I got ahead of myself. Here I want you to notice that it says fruit of the Spirit, not fruit of bread, not fruit of mosaic, not fruit of humanity. It's something that comes from the Spirit, from being near the Spirit, from trying to follow the Spirit, but also as a gift from the Spirit. We're invited to pursue something that's truly a gift, You know, the ruts that have developed in our brains can be vice-like. Some of them are actually too big to handle with just your best efforts or with willpower. Fruit developed over time with investment, small choice after small choice. Yes, but the promise of this passage and the huge theme in the whole of Scripture is that the Spirit is our helper. He's described as the one who comes alongside of us when it's difficult, when it's bigger than us, 
when we're lost at sea and we need someone to come alongside us and show us the way home. When we can't see our way out of the despair that we feel, the one who comes alongside us as a comforter. When we're discouraged because we failed again and again and again, who says, I see you as a different person. That's not who you are. Try again. Our effort and the Spirit actually work together. It's not either or. They're not at war with each other. And I think personally, it seems to me that it's a fool's errand to try and figure out where the grace of God ends and where human will begins. It's a waste of time. And either way, it gets you distracted from the fact that God is saying, you choose and I will help. You can do it, but you can't do it alone. You see the difference? And that's why there's hope here. Because the message is, from Paul here, you can do this. You can choose choice after choice over time, and it will develop character in you, and virtue will be the result. And you can live authentically out of that point, oh yeah, but you need help. You need the Spirit of God. So you can do it, and you'll have help. And the result of that, I think, is hope. This is possible. I can experience that future life now as if I'm connected to that and moving towards that. And so each week, really for the rest of the summer, we're going to look at a different fruit and how it's possible for you and our community to develop that in our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit.